This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with more than 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including The Decisive Battles of World History. For this limited time 80% offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the uh, Weekly Standard, and this week we're looking at the May 25th issue, and the lead piece is an essay by William H. Pritchard, who teaches English at Amherst on The Life of Saul Bellow to Fame and Fortune, 1915-1964, by Zachary Leader. This year, 2015, is the centennial of the birth of Saul Bellow, the Nobel Prize-winning American novelist. I guess I should say Canadian-American novelist, since he was, I'm fairly sure, born in Montreal. Um, And this is the first volume of a projected two-volume authorized biography of Bella by Zachary Leader, and um, it goes from uh, takes us from it, it's really sort of the the Bellow's rise to to preeminence one might say. Um, it's his early life and his early novels uh, such as uh, Dangling Man and Seize the Day from the nineteen forties and uh, the Adventures of Augie March and Henderson the Rain King from the nineteen fifties, and it ends in nineteen sixty four when Bellow is just short of 50 years old and has just published Herzog, which is um, uh, his best-selling novel of that year, which also kind of put him over the top, um, made him, one might say, first among equals among American novelists of that era. It was a rich era in American fiction, of course, with John Updike and Bernard Malamud and others, but um, Bellow was the only one of that crew to win the Nobel Prize, not that that signifies anything, but Herzog was the novel that really um, uh, made him a kind of, um, uh, really put him in the great category, the the very good category, and uh, um, made him the giant that he proved to be in the subsequent um, 30-some years of his life, well, almost 40 years he lived beyond that. That is followed by a piece, a piece by Lawrence Klepp on a book entitled The Ugly Renaissance, Sex, Greed, Violence, and Depravity in an Age of Beauty by Alexander Lee. This is a book from Doubleday, and the review is a kind of, um, it's, a, it's a sort of amusing essay about the underside of the Renaissance, and Lawrence Klepp makes the argument, and it's a perfectly valid one, that this book tends to suggest that we think of the Renaissance um, entirely as a time of sweetness and light and great art and great sculpture and great minds um, freeing themselves from uh, the medieval way of thinking and medieval way of painting, and suddenly painting is um, human-oriented and has perspective and everyone is wonderful and the Borgias are um, presiding benignly over over it all in Italy, and 
in fact, of course, um, the world of the Renaissance was a much more violent and rigidly hierarchical and in some ways quite vicious and uh, tyrannical era. Um, one of the paradoxes of culture, of course, is that great art, great literature often comes out of circumstances um, where artists are uh, really suffering and are to some degree repressed, whereas when they have total, absolute, and unlimited freedom, um, it often produces mediocrity, which tells us something about the way great art is produced. But uh, in any case, if, if, if we can agree that the Renaissance was a, a golden age of, of Western art, then you can imagine that the world of the Renaissance that we know so well, the world of Michelangelo and Leonardo and the Borgias and others, um, is a... Um, uh, is a, a, a tough neighborhood. And, of course, uh, Klepp quotes at the very beginning the famous Orson Welles lines as Harry Lyme in um, Third Man, where he says, In Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, they had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. This year, 2015, is also the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, and one of the signal events of that uh, year, uh, with ramifications uh, lasting for decades afterwards, indeed lasting until today, was the Potsdam Conference. The Yalta Conference was in February 1945, but by the time the victorious powers in Europe, namely um, Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union, met again at Potsdam, which is uh, uh, just outside Berlin in uh, in uh, July of that year, of course, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was dead. And in the course of the Potsdam Conference, in fact, um, Winston Churchill was defeated in the 1945 general election in England. So the, the British representative uh, switched when they took a break. And, and it started, the Potsdam started with Churchill and ended with Attlee. But the book is entitled uh, Potsdam, the End of World War II and the Remaking of Europe by Michael Nyberg. And the reviewer, James Banner, um, very nicely lays out um, the world that confronted the um, the, the 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 three major um, uh, victorious powers of the Second World War, and um, the the individuals involved, um, how Churchill was trying to um, uh, advance the the prospects of Britain and its empire under very difficult circumstances. Um, Harry Truman was presiding over a United States that sort of bestrided the post-war world, but was populated by people who weren't that interested in in um, uh, involving themselves in the affairs of Europe once the once the war was over. And of course, the Red Army, Soviet Union, which had been invaded by Germany, and in and in reclaiming its territory, the Russians uh, invaded the German-held lands of. Eastern and Central Europe, and so by the time they met at Potsdam, the post-war Cold War lines had been drawn by um, the various armies, and the defeat of Germany um, ended, of course, um, the horrors of the Third Reich, but introduced a new set of problems with the burgeoning Cold War. One interesting aspect about this book and about the peace, which Banner mentions, is the is the uh, decisive role played in the American part by the then Secretary of State James Burns, who, whose uh, role in the shaping of the post-war world is 
in my view, uh, often neglected. And here in this book uh, and in this essay, uh, Burns gets some of the credit, the lost credit that he deserves. That is followed by an interesting piece by Kathy Young about a, a British fantasy novelist named Robert Aikman, who uh, died in the early 1980s, but uh, Faber and Faber has um, uh, just reprinted in paperback four of his um, um, uh, novels, Dark Entries, Cold Hand in Mine, The Wine Dark Sea, and The Unsettled Dust. Aikman is a kind of um, British version of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, I guess one would say, uh, a novelist of, of horror and fantasy. Um, but with a but with a definite English touch, um, not very well known in the United States. But Kathy Young makes the makes the case very strongly here that he ought to be better known in the United States, and is thankful that Faber has taken the trouble to um, reprint these four novels. John Podhoretz this week is looking um, at Mad Max Fury Road, uh, which is the latest iteration in the. Um, the Mad Max uh, franchise of films, which began in 1980 and um, uh, starred um, uh, Mel Gibson and others. Mel Gibson has now been uh, succeeded by um, a new actor in his in his place named Tom Hardy, and the love interest of Mad Max is Charlize Theron. And like many um, uh, 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 sequels of movies that have done very well or movie series that have there very well uh, that have done very well this the studio has spared no expense in in the production of this film but john makes the argument for various uh, basic uh, dramatic and cinematic reasons that you may find uh, yourself comparing it unfavorably with the original mad max of 35 years ago but anyway as always john has a lot of interesting and unique observations to make about it which you might want to take a look at before you take a look at Mad Max. So anyway, that is the May 25th Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard. I thank you very much for taking the time to uh, join me for this podcast, and I look very much to meeting again with you next week for our next issue.